I've said it uh, before, it is a great thing to say again to see children here on Sunday mornings, lots of children here on Sunday mornings, uh, and to um, hear them screaming, crying, laughing, doing the things they do. It's really awesome. That's a sign of uh, God's faithfulness and goodness to us. Um, we're finishing up a series that we began back in the fall on Paul's letter to uh, the Philippians. In a few weeks, we'll finish that up. And then we're going to look at the uh, brief series on 2 John and 3 John, which are letters primarily about hospitality. It's important for us to begin thinking about what does it mean to, to, to practice Christian hospitality as we are coming out of 14 months where there hasn't been a lot of hospitality, right, by necessity because of the, of the uh, uh, pandemic. So I do have, a, 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 you know, I don't know, six weeks ago I asked the question, how many of you were getting vaccinated, had gotten vaccinated, gotten at least one shot? I'm not going to put anybody on the spot about that. But I am going to ask a couple of questions this morning just for data points for me. Informal, this is not, you're not tied to, if, I, if you say yes, you're not committing yourself to anything, and if you say no, you won't offend. It didn't get any better than that, right? So what I notice when folks come to church on Sunday mornings, many of them, is they walk into the church um, with a Wawa cup. Yes, there's one. De Deacon Corey Payne, he had one. So that's awesome. I'm really glad you, you got some coffee. Um, did you pour that out of a coffee pot at Wawa? That, but you touched something. You touched something. Now, the reason why I ask this question, and just, just let, please bear with me here, okay? I'm not, I, Corey's my hero, and, uh, you know, we used to, many of you have probably forgotten this, but we used to have some really fine coffee out in the gallery, but for the last 14 months, we've not, and, and, and not because we're coffee snobs, like many people in the West End are, or anything, anything like that. It's just a very simple way to practice hospitality, to welcome people in Jesus' name. Here's a cup of coffee. Now, um, seeing that there's a, at least one infectious disease doctor in the room as I'm speaking, um, I see you, Doc. Um, my understanding is that coronavirus is not necessarily spread by touching surfaces. Is that correct? Largely. I'm, listen, no one's going to sue you if you answer this, this question for me, right? But that is what the CDC has kind of said, right? That it's airborne, correct? Good. Okay. He agreed with me on that. Um, we are... We, I've been thinking about how we could get some coffee in the building and be able to serve it, maybe out of the building. Maybe if we put it out on the center walkway because the weather's warmed up. I'm just trying to warm the place up. And I'm also, this is part of our discipleship. Because part of what Jesus is discipling us into is not just deeper theology and those things, as important as those are, 
but we need to learn again how to talk to one another, be in proximity, appropriate proximity to one another. And so this is a simple way to do that. So pray for us as we figure out, try to figure out ways that we can do that uh, going forward. I know this may seem silly and unimportant, but it is one of the things that we do here to kind of welcome people. And so I'm just trying to figure out a way to do that. So put, put two church leaders on the spot to do that, but uh, that's okay. Uh, we're, we're all brothers and sisters here. That's good. So we're going to look today at Philippians 4:19. Before I read that, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in on that text. Father, we come to you today and uh, we, we've sung about your grace, we've sung about the sustaining power of your love, and I am so grateful today for those things, but Lord, I am so grateful today that, uh, that your love is demonstrated towards us in patience, that you are so patient and kind and gentle with your people. Uh, Lord, I, I pray uh, that... Uh, you would work more and more of your character by your Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives. I confess I am impatient, unkind, and not very gentle. And so I pray that you would, uh, by your Spirit and uh, through your Word, would you press those things uh, into our hearts and lives and make that fruit be born in our community. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Philippians 4.19, the text is right there in the bulletin, also up on uh, the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So this, this verse, I've taken it just, we've been working our way through Philippians, and I took this verse out just by itself, because it's kind of one of those day-spring Christian card verses that, that we rip out of context and we, we, we write and we, we send to people and we miss the real depth and the real riches uh, that this text tells us. Um, and I, I, I want to be, begin today by just talking a little bit about what, uh, what, what needs are what the needs are that Paul was addressing, what the needs of the Philippian church were, and what our needs are today, and how Jesus meets those needs. Um, it, 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 is, it, it is a uh, profound thing to think about the promise of God to meet all of our needs richly. So I want to ask you a couple of questions today. We're going, to, we're going to ask a lot of questions as we look at this, because this begs the question, right? What, what, what really do I need? What do you and I need? What are our needs? Um, we um, experienced uh, a few weeks ago, actually about six, six weeks ago, I came home on a Friday evening, and Marty met me, kissed me at the door, we were getting ready to talk about what we were going to have for dinner, and she said, so just so you know, that the washing machine has been doing what it's doing since 3 o'clock. And so I don't know what's wrong, but it's got this code up on the little readout on it, and I'm like, well, this is easy. You know, I used to fix washing machines to help put us through seminary, so I look at the code, the Samsung uh, website, and whatever the code was said catastrophic failure. 
which kind of scared me a little bit, you know, like, <laughs> uh-oh, is it going to catch on fire? What, what's going to happen here? So I'm like, oh, not a problem, sweetie, you know, uh, we'll just go get a washing machine. So we hop in the car, what you want to do on a Friday night, you know, and when, when you've been married over 30 years, these are the things you do to have romantic evenings out. And so we go and get a washing machine and, and we picked one out and it was great and we bought it, but we bought that washing machine a full almost month before it got to our house. Couldn't get it to our house for a month, which I, I was bitterly upset about, but I understand that might be a record that some people are having to wait months for a washing machine. Do you need a washing machine? No, seriously. Do you need a washing machine in your house? We have one now. I, had, I, I told this story at the first service and 20 people must have offered me who knew all the people in our church had extra washing machines? Can you believe it? Yeah, I got one out in the garage. My mom and dad got married uh, in the summer of 1950, and uh, they uh, got married on a Friday evening. My dad was a construction worker. He got off from work, um, took a quick shower, met my mom at the little Baptist church that they were going to, uh, my dad's uh, brother, uh, two of my uh, mom's sisters were there, the pastor and a couple that had discipled them, and they got married, and they went on their honeymoon for a quick weekend in Flat Rock, North Carolina. When they got to the hotel room where they were staying for their honeymoon, my mom discovered that my dad, who was 20 years old, had never in his life owned a toothbrush. that he brushed his teeth with a willow stick and baking soda, that that's how he grew up. Do you need a toothbrush? Silly, I know. But as we look at this text, I think it's important for us to understand who Paul is addressing and the context in which uh, he is addressing them. So uh, Claire, would you put, put my notes up there? So, as we've noticed over the last couple of weeks, Paul has received a monetary gift from the Philippians while he is there in prison, in jail, uh, imprisoned in the city of Rome awaiting trial, likely to be martyred. Um, he uh, writes in chapter 4, thanking the, the Philippian church for the gift that they had sent him with a, by Epaphroditus, giving glory to God for that. And he says, as he talks to them about that, that he had been in the school of contentment. Remember, he says that he has learned to be content uh, in, in want, plenty and want. And remember, this is from the man who confessed that he didn't really know he was a sinner until he confronted the issue of coveting in his own heart. So God, throughout his Christian life, by the Spirit of God, has taken a man overwhelmed with coveting and turned him into a man who can say, in plenty and in want, and in, in abundance and, and, and poverty, 
I have learned the secret of contentment. And the secret of contentment is, is that Jesus is his all in all, that his contentment is founded upon the promise and the character of God, demonstrated to him in the cross of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again. And that is where he settles his heart, that those things are true regardless of his circumstances. And that's what gives him the ability, while he is in prison, to say to the Philippian church, he's content. But I want to point something else out to you. He is thanking them for the small monetary gift that they gave him. Now, we've talked now for months about Paul's imprisonment. Now, you probably think, and I, this is my mistake that I didn't clarify this sooner, that you probably think that Paul is in a prison like we think of prisons, right? That, that he is in a place behind bars, that a, a guard comes by periodically, slides food through a slot in the door, and that's how he eats. Or maybe he goes to the cafeteria that they have there in the prison in Rome. That's not it at all. Caesar does not care whether Paul eats or not. Paul's probably in a house somewhere in the city, guarded, probably chained 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier. Rome is not invested in taking care of their prisoners. If he doesn't get gifts... And that's why he speaks so, so wonderfully of Timothy and Epaphroditus earlier in the letters we've noted, because his life depends on his friends taking care of him. If they don't give him money, he doesn't eat. So that's the man, and that's the circumstance that he finds himself in as he says, I have learned the secret to be content in abundance or poverty, right? So that's, that's, that's the nature of, of, of the situation uh, that, that he finds himself in. And so he says to the Philippians, as he rounds out this part of the passage, he's like, this gift was great, and I know, as someone who is in prison with needs that only other people can meet, that he can't meet himself, that God is so good and so big and so powerful and so rich that in Jesus Christ, not only will he provide for the Philippians, but he will provide for them out of his riches and glory in abundance. Now, that's important for us to, to unpack and, and, and to think about because the way, we, the way you and I tend to think about our needs is, is that there's, there's uh, as Spurgeon wrote uh, about this text, that, that, you know, for every person in this room, there are probably an infinite number of needs. If I were to ask you what you need, and we're going to unpack some of those in a few minutes, the, the number of needs is stun startling, stunning. It's overwhelming. Just, just think about what you think you need. And if you think, well, I don't need much. Well, I didn't think I needed a washing machine until I didn't have one. And the anger and the bitterness and the rancor and the complaining and the discontentment about a washing machine revealed a lot about my heart, right? 
So as you begin to consider these things that we have that, that we're like, oh, I have so few needs. Well, I, I'm here to tell you I'm needy. I need a lot. Um, and usually we talk at West End about being needy as a good thing. Um, but the things that we really think we need that make or break us, if we don't get those, we're undone, aren't we? Two Old Testament stories kind of help illustrate this for me, both, both about the prophet Elijah. Remember, Elijah goes to the village of Zarephath, and he, as he's walking into the village, he comes across a widow who is out gathering a few sticks to build a fire, and he begins to speak to her, and she says to him that it's she and her son, that she has just enough flour and just enough oil. She's going to make a fire, make a little bit of bread, and then they're going to die. Basically, they're going to starve to death because that's all they have. They don't have anything else left to, and no prospects of provision. And Elijah says, well, if you'll make the bread for me, feed me, God will provide you with what you need. And so she does that. Just imagine going to bed every night with no food in your house. You use the oil, you use the flour. And by the way, there's no complaining about just having bread, right? There's, right? Going to bed every night with an empty jar and an empty flour bin and waking up every morning and there being enough flour and enough oil for you to eat for that day. The other story is from Elisha. Elisha uh, runs into a widow whose husband was a prophet who died. She owes a debt. She owes a lot of money. And Elisha asks her, do you, what do you have of value? And she says, I have a little container of oil. Elisha says, get all the empty pots. Go to your friends and neighbors. Get all of their empty pots. And Begin filling them up, pouring out of the pitcher of oil that you have. And when you have filled them all up, take that oil and sell it and settle the debt. And so she pours and pours and pours until she fills uh, uh, all the pots and uh, containers that she can full of oil. She goes and sells it and settles the debt. Spurgeon says of this text, that the way most of us think about this and the way we think about our lives is we hear this promise of God and we go to him and we go get all of our vessels, all of our empty pots and pans, and we set them out before God and we say, fill them. Fill them. We go and get as many as we can and, and the number actually is unending, right? So what, what does this promise mean, and how do I rub this truth up against the lived reality of my life? You know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the provision of God, and a question came in during the Q&A about what do we say to those people uh, who are followers of Jesus Christ in parts of the world who are starving? What do we say to people who are followers of Christ, who are dying, who are suffering death for their faith? 
how does this text apply there? Well, part of the problem that we have about this is, and this is what we do with many of the promises of God, is we take the promises of God and we separate it from the work of God for us in Jesus Christ. And so when we read the Bible like this all the time, we we take a a principle or a promise in the the word of God and we we do not read that, that promise and apply that promise or principle through the lens and through the person and work of Jesus Christ for us. And so when Paul says to us and he says to the church at Philippi, I am certain that my God, this God who is mine, who belongs to me and I belong to him, has has met my needs in Jesus Christ, more than met my needs. He has provided me with righteousness and goodness. He has provided me with grace and mercy. He has provided me with salvation. Every spiritual blessing in the heavens is mine. My eternity is secure. If my body fails. My God will not, and he will see me through to the very end. Still, this promise is written to us in the context of a very needy, physically needy, in this kind of gritty here and now work. And so let's take that, this promise, We know that we have the riches of glory. We have every spiritual blessing, as Paul writes to the the Ephesians, poured out upon us in Jesus Christ. We have peace and joy and love. We have all, all of those fruit of the Spirit. But what about, what about, what about? Next slide, please, Clara. So we need to look at what we believe our needs are and what our thriving and our flourishing are, and what God thinks they are, right? So let's ask some questions. Do you need to be healthy? And if you're not healthy, does that mean God is failing on this promise? And if you do need to be healthy, and, and do, uh, how healthy do you need to be? Right? I just hate it when you hear these platitude. Well, if you've got your health, you've got everything. You ever hear that platitude? So dumb. So dumb. Because I feel pretty good, and I can tell you a thousand things that I don't feel like I have everything, right? Your kids need a childhood unmarred by suffering because you're going to move heaven and earth to make sure that that need gets met, right? Do you need a healthy marriage? And listen, I, I don't want you to, uh, uh, you know, to suddenly go out and, and buy a pile of rocks and tell your kids to bust them up so that they'll learn what suffering is. And I, and I don't want you to do anything dumb to wreck your good and happy marriage, right? But, but the fact of the matter is, is that a need that you must have to be able to live and follow Christ? Do you need your child to be converted? Next slide. Do you need a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend? And without them, you have the sense that God is not providing you with what you need. Do you need to move? 
Sometimes you do, but, but is, does life depend upon that move or not? Do you need a new house? Tough, tough luck in this market, right? <laughs> from, what I, from what I've seen, right? Do you need a different job? Do you need to be rid of chronic pain? I, I know of nothing, no other suffering, no other thing that we deal with as human beings that is likely to send us into the pit of depression and anxiety than living every single day with pain. Now, the way we tend to think about this is, is that we have these, uh, uh, these needs for these kind of miraculous things where God is going to show up because we have this screaming need and that God will show up and that, and, and that if he doesn't show up, we're, you know, we're going to be undone, but, but, but he always does, right? It's like the George Mueller stories, you know, who George Mueller was, the, the, the man who ran the orphanages in uh, England. Apparently he had this verse, or I, maybe it's Spurgeon's orphanage, but one orphanage I know had this verse up over the, uh, the door. Remember the George Mueller story? He's they're gathering for lunch. He's got a room full of orphans. They have no food. And they're like, what are we going to do? And he's like, we're going to pray, thanking God for his provision. And they pray. And lo and behold, a milk wagon's wheel breaks right out in front of the, of the, of the orphanage. They, if they don't do something with the milk, it'll spoil so the orphans get the milk. Now, if you're like me, I hear that story, and, and I'm warmed by that. I'm encouraged by that, but I have to be honest that there have been times and periods of grief and struggle and suffering in my life where that story mocked me. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Do you understand what I'm talking about? And so, so as we think about that, we have to come to grips with the fact that when Paul makes this promise, if it is true, we have to come to grips with the sovereign God who says to us, I will meet every need. And what does that exactly mean? And, and the thing that is so dramatic to me about this is that from, from, in my experience as a pastor, the thing that undermines our faith the most is not God's failure to meet some big need, but the chronic failure, perceived failure of God, to meet something that we've deemed a need over years. Lord, we pray about this every week, and you don't seem to be doing a thing about it, right? So what are we to make of that, and how are we to, to get off of this kind of understanding of this? Well, I think, I think this, is, this is where uh, we uh, have to go with this. Next slide. Paul, Paul has said in Philippians 4.12 that he knows how to be brought low, and he knows how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So notice what he says here is that the secret, he has the secret to facing abundance and need. He doesn't say there that what he recognizes about this is, is that God will never place him in a situation where he feels needy. Or God will never place him in a situation where he doesn't feel poor. And God will never place him in a situation where he, he detects that there's some sort of deficit there. In fact, what we recognize about that is, is that God sovereignly looks at our lives 
scoops us up in his grace and mercy in Jesus Christ and sees us through to the end. He loves us so much that he knows what we need. He knows what we need better than we do. If we, if we were the sole determiners of our need, if we, were the only, if we were the ones to say, this is my need and this only is my need, we'd never believe the gospel, would we? It would never be meaningful to us. It, we would be so walled off that the, that the truth of God's grace and love to us would never reach us because none of us walks around unless the Spirit does something to us with the understanding that, oh my, I am a sinner. I am in a pit that I cannot get out of. And yet, the Lord sees that, and He knows that about us, and it moved Him to compassion to meet our need in Jesus Christ. It moved Him by grace and mercy to come and pursue us and supply our need even before we knew we needed it. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If that's true, then not only can I trust him to meet my needs, but more than that, I can trust him to know what I need. And if I can trust him to know what I need, then I can know what in, every, in any and every circumstance, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, is the, is the settled disposition of my heart with the solid un- ground underneath my feet that this God loves me and he knows what I need and he will see me through. So when we pray, when we cry out to God for healing, when we look to him for goodness and love and mercy and provision, we do that with the solid understanding. And we can do that boldly because he loves us so much. He takes those prayers for our needs and uses them in such a way to provide for us what he knows in his good and fatherly care that we need, right? Notice what Jesus says to his disciples when he teaches them to pray in Matthew 6. He says, don't be like the pagans that think that if they keep repeating things, they'll, they'll reach up and grab God by the big toe and make him listen to them. He says, no, this then is how you should pray. Wait, oh, go back, Claire. There's the kicker there. I missed it. Um, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. You're not saying to God, hey, pay attention. Wake up from the front of this boat. Don't you care that we're dying in the middle of a storm? And Jesus gets up and he looks at them and he stills the storm. And what does he say to them? He says, where's your faith? It's not that the storm is not bad. The storm is life-threatening. But the, the issue of faith is Jesus knows what you need. And if he, if, if he was willing and powerfully willing to shed his blood for you because that is the coverage and the atonement that you needed, how much more will he supply these needs that we have? And so as he teaches his disciples to pray, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Next slide. So, when you go to ask him, this is what you say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Now, for I remember being so shocked when I discovered that that word for daily bread is just that. It's not give me a good return on this investment. It's not buy that house for me. It's not these other things. What it simply means is, Lord, I pray today, because you already know this, I am a weak, finite human being. I need enough food today to eat to live. Would you give that to me? And here's the kicker. If the Lord believes you need that today, you will have it. And you can rest in that. And it's not because he's some kind of giant depriver in the sky or that he kind of puts us in some sort of situation where he might not do that. The fact is, this, this whole promise is in the shadow of the cross that we understand that our biggest, deepest need for life and for eternity has been met in Jesus Christ. So how much more will he understand that today Steve needs this piece of bread and this cup of water, and I will see to it by my providence that he receives it. And he goes on there to say, and not only do we need daily bread, but we need to be reminded daily of our the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ so that we would be quick to forgive those who sin against us and that we are so weak and so easily tempted that we would not be led into temptation. The Lord is a supplier. The Lord meets needs. But more than that, he does it with wisdom and grace and power, and he is utterly trustworthy. Look, saints, I, I know that this is so challenging and so difficult, but the need that you're experiencing today and the fact that the Lord seems to be not meeting that need, disagreeing with you that, that, that you uh, have that uh, need, perhaps what he's doing is something even greater, even more beautiful, even more profound. I wrote in uh, yesterday's letter that um, I know that uh, that Wallace Stegner quote about all of these sorrows will come to me in blessing in my life ultimately. The one who is entrusted knows that his father loves him understands that these needs, these pains, these sufferings, the Father knows them, and as he supplies our need, he'll give us something even better and richer. He'll change us. He'll give us himself. Let me pray. Lord, as we come to you today, we, we thank you for this uh, promise. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit, and so I pray that you would help us today. Lord, we are so tempted to think you don't love us or to think that somehow you will leave us alone, but you are our God, and we are your people, and so we know, we, in our saner moments, we know the truth, and so, Lord, would you help us?
to live in light of that, to trust in light of that, uh, to cry out to you in our need in light of that. And Lord, would you teach us what it means to entrust ourselves to you? Lord, this stuff is, is so challenging and so uh, uh, profound, and yet uh, it's very simple. Uh, you love us, and you will see us through to the end. Give us confidence in that today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's confess our sins uh, together by using this confession of sin printed uh, in the bulletin uh, up on the screens behind me. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank Thank you for the glorious glorious riches you have have given given us through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. But we confess today that we often live like we do not have your favor in Christ. Instead of resting in your delight in your church, we avoid you in shame and guilt. Instead of receiving your gracious supply to meet our every need, we strive for peace with anxious effort. Instead of believing that you are made us your own people, we act as if we are cut off from our king and his kingdom. Instead of pursuing your purposes, we scrap and cling to our short-sighted agendas. Forgive us, restore us, cleanse us, heal us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Believers, hear these words of encouragement. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins.